Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 128.1. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and I'm recording this episode on October 3rd, 2023 in Princeton, New Jersey. In general, we are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without presentism. But not this time. The main purpose of this micro-episode is to give you the details on the much ballyhooed Philadelphia area meetup of fans of the podcast. The date is this Friday, October 6, 2023. The place will be in a Chamonix Creek Brewing Company, 909 Ray Avenue, Croydon, Pennsylvania. The official start time is 5 p.m., but if you can't get there so early, rest assured that I'll be around until at least 7.30 and certainly as late as the conversation remains fun and interesting. I'll aim to get there at 4.30 or so to check out the room I reserved, which I believe they call The Nook. I trust many of you will recognize me from my photo on the website or on Twitter or Facebook, but in case not, I'll be wearing a red history nerd cap. Be there, as your schedule allows. And if you do plan on coming, it would help me to send a note at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com or via the contact page on the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, or by direct message on Twitter or even Facebook. I hope I picked a good venue. The main consideration was geography, and Croydon seemed to be within range for a lot of listeners, yet out of the expense and difficulty of downtown Philly. The brewery is also within the northern boundary of New Sweden, at least according to the most aggressive interpretation of Peter Minwee's long-lost deed. Last but not least, the actual Neshaminy Creek, which flows nearby, gets its name from the Lene Lenyape language, and it's thought to mean place where we drink twice. That makes sense, since twice is about my limit for the drive back to Princeton. As those of you who follow me on X, Twitter, know, I spent the last week knocking around Poland with a couple of college friends, the same guys who came along on the trip to Cuba last November. The last few years, pandemic aside, we've gone off for a week somewhere that our wives don't really want to go much, or at least is not high on their priority list. We are all experienced travelers, although one of us is more experienced than almost everybody. He has been to every country in the world except Iraq and North Korea. So he often sort of doubles as our guide or at least advises on the trip and uh, has a lot of interesting things to say under any circumstances. Anyway, on the flight back, I wrote up some trenchant observations about the trip, which I was going to tack on to this episode. Sadly, hundreds of words of crystalline prose just vanished, probably due to my own incompetence. Fairly or not, I'm going to blame Lot Polish Airline, which does not have Wi-Fi, so the file did not get cloudified the way it usually does. I do want to use this moment to recommend a book, one that I'm only a third of the way through. The Identity Trap, A Story of Ideas and Power in Our Time, by Yasha Monk. Monk, who is a professor at Johns Hopkins, prolific public intellectual, and manifestly a man of the left, 
traces the development of the package of attitudes now derided as woke and which he calls the identity synthesis. He breaks the story into four parts and summarizes them neatly in a few paragraphs up front, which I will read in the hope that you buy the book or at least follow up. I found it very interesting. Quote, In the first part of the book, I tell the curious story of how a set of seemingly disparate ideas came to form a new ideology that by around 2010 would prove highly influential in leading universities. Many critics of so-called wokeness have argued that it is a form of cultural Marxism, but the true history of the identity synthesis turns out to be more surprising. It features the rejection of grand narratives, including both liberalism and Marxism, by postmodern thinkers such as Michel Foucault, an embrace of the need for intellectuals to speak on behalf of oppressed groups by adopting a form of strategic essentialism by postcolonial thinkers such as Gayatri Chakravorty Spivak, and the rejection of the key values of the civil rights movement, including the goal of racial integration by critical race theorists such as Derek Bell. In 2010, the identity synthesis held significant sway in universities, but had no more than marginal importance in the mainstream culture. By 2020, it had reshaped some of the most powerful institutions in the country. In part two, I tell the story of how a seemingly niche academic theory could gain so much influence over the course of a single decade. The growth of social media inspired the rise of a popularized version of the identity synthesis that transformed the ideas of serious thinkers into simplistic memes and slogans. The incentives created by new forms of distribution turned legacy media outlets into loudspeakers for this new ideology. College graduates, deeply steeped in its ideals, spread the identity synthesis to some of the world's most powerful institutions as part of a short march through the institutions. And finally, the election of Donald Trump's supercharged, well-founded concerns about threats to minority groups, making it seem disloyal for progressives to criticize any ideas associated with the left and rendering criticisms of the identity synthesis taboo in many milieus. As the popularized form of the identity synthesis conquered the mainstream, its proponents have begun to push for radical changes in key areas of public life. They argue that members of different identity groups can never fully understand each other. They are suspicious when members of one group are inspired by the culture of another group, decrying such instances as a harmful form of cultural appropriation. They are deeply skeptical of long-standing principles such as free speech, insinuating that those who defend its importance must be motivated by a desire to denigrate minority groups. They embrace a form of progressive separatism, favoring the creation of social spaces in which members of different communities remain apart from each other. And they champion public policies that explicitly make the way the state treats people depend on categories of group identity, like race, gender, and sexual orientation. In part three, 
I argue that these applications of the identity synthesis are likely to prove counterproductive, eroding the values that make possible a society in which all people can live in free pursuit of their best selves. Subjecting each of these claims to careful philosophical analysis, I argue that there are better ways to deal with the concerns that motivate them. Many advocates of the identity synthesis feel righteous anger at genuine injustices, but their central precepts amount to a radical attack on the long-standing principles that animate democracies around the world. Thankfully, there's a principled alternative. In part four, I make the case for the core principles of philosophical liberalism. Those of us who believe in universal values and neutral rules can formulate a trenchant critique of historical oppression and persistent injustice in our own terms. In fact, our convictions have, over the course of the past 50 years, already helped to bring about enormous progress. They now animate the core institutions of societies that, for all of their persistent flaws, do a better job at avoiding sectarian violence and extreme cruelty than any other in history. The key to an aspirational politics that can actually build a better world lies in living up to, not in abandoning, universal values and neutral rules. Back to me. This is a very rich book in the sense that almost everyone will learn a lot from it. I spent a semester studying critical legal studies in the mid-80s, and so was at least passingly familiar with the concepts of wokeism or the successor ideology, as some have named it, or as Monk calls it, the identity synthesis. And I still have learned something on every page, literally. Another good measure of the book's value is that there are things in it to irritate and even outrage activists on both sides of the American political divide. That's almost always a marker of a book that will tell you something you don't know, no matter who you are. Finally, the identity trap lays the foundation for a point that I've been planning to elucidate in a future episode, that critical race theory, on the one hand, and teaching the ugly parts, as I call it, with as much intellectual honesty as one can muster, are entirely different things. Politicians and activists on both sides have tried to blur the distinction between those very different things. Monk's book implicitly teaches the reader how to see the difference through the fog of nonsense. Naturally, I'll put a link in the episode notes on the website so you can buy the identity trap conveniently and get me some credit besides. I'll also put up a free link to Sam Harris's interview of Yasha Monk, which I listened to a few days ago and which was the occasion for me buying the book. Regardless, I highly recommend it. Thank you again for listening. If you are within range, I'd love to see you on October 6th at 5 p.m. and thereafter at Neshaminy Creek Brewing in Croydon, Pennsylvania, where we shall drink at least twice. Until next time. <laughs>